Hi, players. Welcome back to part three of our four-part series with Ken Mead, the lead investigator for Las Vegas Metro for the Route 91 Harvest Country Music Festival, the largest mass shooting in U.S. history back on October 1st, 2017. Before we get started, just a couple of quick housekeeping items. Head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five starters. Let us know what you think about these episodes. This is, remember, this is the only interview ever of the lead investigator for this shooting, and it's going to be the only one for a long time. So let us know what you think about this. Also head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter. Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go over to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a lot of great content over there in addition to our free content we put out here. Also, go to facebook.com, type in Game of Crimes fans, join our fan group led by Sandy Salvato, our favorite mafia queen. It's our private Facebook group where we do a lot more in-depth discussions than what you see in the public. So let's get back to part three of our four-part series with Ken Mead, the lead investigator for the Route 91 Harvest Country Music Festival shooting in Las Vegas, Nevada on October 1st, 2017. In which that'll get into us later talking about the why, you know, uh, which is ultimately one of the biggest questions, you know, people want to answer. But so you, you've got this thing in front of you and I appreciate the way you're talking about it. You know, it reminds me of a story somebody talked about. It was after 9-11 or it may have been the first Trade Center bombing. But um, one of the captain's battalion chiefs or whatever shows up and he's standing outside and, you know, he's directing stuff. And somebody goes, why aren't you in there helping him? He says, because that's not where I'm valuable. I'm valuable standing back here. Because if I go in, I'm just another body, but back here I can provide the command and control because that's really kind of what you're providing now is that overview uh, of command and control of, you know, kind of what's going on, at least from your perch. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, I mean, I, I was fairly confident, you know, again, that once I started the investigation that nobody was going to pull me off it. I knew it was going to be a team effort, right? So we had other teams that were coming in to uh, assist us because, again, we had multiple locations that we needed to start doing search warrants for and all the other things um, that we needed to start to take a look at uh, with him. Um, and the girlfriend, once uh, ultimately that occurred several days later. Um, but it was really, you know, I, I started it, but it really was a team effort. So, I, you know, I don't want to toot my own yeah. horn. No, yeah, no, no, I don't no, want to toot my own horn. But, you know, yeah, I mean, the first initial search warrant, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously uh, very proud of the fact that, you know, I was able to author that and get us in the door quickly to, again, try to give us a better grasp on what was actually going on. But that's my point, rather. Rather than getting caught up in the tactical piece of this, you had to stay back and look at it from an operational mm -hmm. or even a strategic standpoint to say, at some point, we got to have warrants. At some point, we got to start collecting this information. Everybody else is responding to the scene. You just would have been another body there. Your value was standing back and starting to say, hey, let's start putting some organization around this chaos so we can start understanding. Um from the time the shooting happened until the time you get in the door of the house uh, up in Mesquite, how long did that take? Uh, so shooting occurred right about like 10.05. Um, we were probably in the house, I don't know, maybe 5, 6 a.m., I think. Probably so, you know, six, seven, seven, eight hours, I think. You know, because we have to um, get the search warrant, which, you know, takes us a little bit of time. We have to get a team uh, ready, right? Which we ultimately ended up being North Las Vegas Police Department um, because our SWAT team uh, was, yeah. yeah, I mean, they were involved in the uh, clearing of the building at Mandalay Bay and they were involved in, you know, being on standby. And there's a lot of different tactics we do on the department. So we don't want to over converge all of our resources into one location, right? In case 
something else does happen and we still have to do traditional police work. So, um, you know, we sent North Las Vegas up there and they have to stage and they have to prepare and, you know, prep and do all their stuff. So I think by the time they finally, and it has to be slow and methodical, right? Cause they don't know what they're going to find in the house. So they have to breach. I know they breached the uh, garage door with a robot and they, you know, they take exactly it very, very point. slow. After everything that you found in that hotel room, my first thought is this is place is booby trapped. Oh, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that they took that in consideration. Um, so everything has to be very, very slow and methodical once they get up there. So, um, I think one of the first pictures I got, uh, from the scene, uh, was right about daylight. So I'm guessing it was probably about 6am when I first started to hear that, you know, they were in the home and, you know, doing their search. Was there but anything? Go ahead. You could, you could have gotten Mesquite PD. They they probably went up and secured the site so nobody could come or go from there, I'm sure. They right? did, yes. Yeah. So they were helpful in that. But again, they're very small police departments. Mm-hmm. So tactically, you know, they really wouldn't have the ability to do that, I don't believe, especially on graveyard hours. Mm-hmm. Was there but yeah, some- we work we work well with them. What, was there something when the when once the door was breached, everything was secure, and you've got investigators going in there? Was there anything that was immediately discovered that piqued your interest? No, I think uh, it's probably the lack of anything in there that probably piqued the interest. I mean, the house was very clean. There wasn't anything outwardly obvious. I mean, it was, everything was in order. Um, I mean, it would look like a typical single-family residence. I mean, nothing absent knowing why we were there and the door being ripped off, the garage door being ripped off by the robot. Uh, absent that, you would have thought that you were just walking into you know anybody's home for you know, whatever, uh, you know, it, it, there was nothing glaring that would have indicated stuff. Um, in the garage, there was a gun safe. And once we opened that, you know, I mean, we, we determined that he had an arsenal in there as well, but, um, I mean, there wasn't anything in the home, you know, there wasn't any, any fortifications, photos. anything no. like that. Okay. Nothing at all. I mean, it was just your very normal, typical single family residence. You know, when we kicked this off, we said there's a lot, a lot of uh, people can go in and get a lot of this information. But the one thing we've got to get out, obviously, before you get into a position to where we can't talk about it anymore, there's, and this is something that was in the notes and we talked about too, it's about the girlfriend. At what point did the girlfriend start becoming very interesting to you in terms of not just the fact she knows this guy, but she's in the Philippines? Was there something, you know, in other words, what's the story now behind this that a lot of people don't realize? So, you know, we, we get the phone call from the daughter uh, who says, you know, my mom's uh, outside of country and she's willing to cooperate. So she had a flight back home and I don't remember the exact date. It was several days after October 1, um, but she was coming back uh, anyway to the U.S., right? So we ended up reaching out to uh, counterparts with the FBI and DHS, right? Because we needed to reach out to the embassy in, in, uh, in Manila and get uh, them on board, one, to confirm that she was actually out of country, which we were able to do fairly quickly with our uh, federal counterparts. Um, But, you know, the question was, okay, so now do we send people there or do we bring her back here? You know, how does it work to try to figure out what her level of involvement is, right? So um, I'll jump ahead a little bit. You know, the investigation's going on. uh, You know, we find out what's going on and we can go back if need be. But I think it was probably two or three days into the investigation. Um, uh, the police department operations center, you know, had become kind of, uh, I don't want to say routine, but, uh, you know, it was just, it was normal activity, right? So we were processing the investigation. It had been like any other normal investigation that we had kind of You'd done. You'd achieved um, your rhythm. You'd achieved that kind of rhythm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. 
And so uh, I ended up popping over to the FBI office because I hadn't really been over there since the, the case actually started. And so I pop over to the FBI office because by that time we had a sergeant on the GTTF from our police department that was over there kind of liaisoning full time, right? And so we were running shifts over on the GTTF as well. And so I go over there and uh, uh, Sergeant uh, Rick Myers, now Lieutenant Myers, uh, approaches me. I go into the command post of the FBI and it's still... I mean, crazy over there and it, there's action everywhere. And it's, and I'm like, I, this is where I need to be. I need to come over here because I believe this is where I'm going to be most beneficial. Right. So let me come over to the FBI and work on this side of the house now. Right. Cause it, you know, again, you, we'd kind of re- achieved our rhythm and you know, it was essentially a homicide investigation times 58 at that point. Right. Um, and so when I went over to the FBI, you know, I saw everything that was going on. At that point, the FBI started handling all the tips and leads that were coming in. They had set up a, a tip line. So everything that was really coming in investigatively was really heavy on the FBI side at that point. Um, and so uh, my uh, then sergeant, now lieutenant, uh, said, hey, are you willing to fly? Are, I, I Can you go to... Uh, Los Angeles to pull her off a flight because she has agreed to come back on her own free will. She agreed to come back and cooperate in the investigation. Which that's um, a, that's an indicator you're looking for right there. Like if she's got, you think I want you don't want to come to a conclusion, but if she got something to hide, it would be easy to stay in Manila and force you guys to go through a whole host of bureaucratic red tape and everything to get her here. Absolutely, yeah. So my first impression was okay. She's coming back on her own free will. Um, She's probably not involved like we think she did, but you know, again, I was getting a lot of different varying opinions from various supervisors and you know upper level administration on our department about uh, her level of involvement. Right? There was a lot of press conferences about her being a person of interest, and you know what that means is very subjective. Um, but you know, I, I thought, well, if she's coming back on her own free will and she's willing to talk to us. Um, you know, she's probably not involved in the planning, right? I mean, she may have had some awareness of it, but um, I wasn't overly concerned. I didn't default to her being a suspect, right? I didn't also default to her being a witness or a victim. I kind of kept an open mind about where this was going to go. So yeah, so that's kind of how it evolved to where ultimately I uh, became lead, um, I don't want to say interrogator, interviewer, uh, person with her and then uh, an FBI partner that uh, flew out with me that, you know, probably two or three days into it. So where did the interviews take place? Uh, so we they took place, uh, which is a very interesting dynamic. Uh, so we were told that she was flying into L.A., uh, we were given her flight information and we were told that, you know, she was going to be taken kind of back of the house and all these different ways uh, to kind of avoid the media that had just swarmed LAX. Did they escort her? Did they verify that she got onto the plane from the Manila side? Did you have anybody there making sure she got on board? I'm not sure if they did or not, but obviously she did get on board because, okay. um, you know, we had received word that she was on board. Um I don't know if they put somebody on the plane with her uh, from the U.S. side, you know, to make sure that she got on. I'm not quite sure what that looked like on the Fed side, because I believe DHS took lead on that um, with making sure that they were dealing with the the customs and immigrations issue with her getting back into country. Uh, So I had, again, been at the Fusion or I've been at FBI command post and it was like 3 p.m. And my boss said, hey, I need you in L.A. by five. And I had nothing. I had no backpack. I had no change of underwear. I had no toothbrush. I had nothing with me. Um, so myself and an FBI agent, uh, Henry Schlump, uh, who was a robbery FBI agent, uh, were both kind of standing in the same spot. And they said, hey, we need you. So we literally got in the car with nothing more than just clothes on our back, 
ran to, uh, at the time it was McCarran airport. Uh, we ran to the airport, we, uh, got a flight, you know, luckily I was a DFO, so I was able to fly armed. I used my FBI credentials to get on board and we, we flew and we met uh, an FBI agent, uh, FBI, uh, LA has a field office at LAX. And so we met the uh, FBI agent that was working the case on that side, kind of coordinating things at LAX. So we met with her, and uh, that's kind of how it started. So, yeah. so by the time you landed at LAX, uh, <laughs> you must be smelling <laughs> ripe, right? No underwear change. You've been going strong for a while. I, we had been working uh, straight through. I think I'd been working pretty much 20-hour days and maybe four hours of sleep. Uh, so we hadn't really been sleeping much at all. Um uh, I had gone home that morning to shower and then came right back in. Um, oh, thank God. So that's your mom. Did you have clean underwear on? Right? Yes. Right. So the old <laughs> adage, you know, you don't want to get shot on duty and not have clean underwear. Right? That's right. So, that's right. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, got to the airport. And so I, I, again, you talk about chaos again, and we talk about media. Um, it's very surreal because, you know, you're dealing with the case in Vegas and it's an hour flight to LAX. And the whole time I was flying uh, on the airline and watching the news while I was flying. And sometimes the dynamic would change from what I was told when I left to what the media was reporting while I was on board to what actually was going on on the ground when I got to LA. It's amazing. But when I got to LAX the first time, I mean, there was every media outlet from everywhere in the world that you could think of that had already received leaked information that she was flying on this plane already had footage of her coming down in a wheelchair. There were drones everywhere. <laughs> it was ridiculous how over the top LAX was when I got there, it, but it played to our benefit. Well, let's put a pause in there for a second. Cause that's one of the things that drives, drove me nuts about a lot of these things too. And I know it just happened. Um, like, so when we had Michael Coyazo in from Nashville, um, and the Covenant school shooting, the even though I know a lot of people want to see the manifesto, pictures of it were leaked. That's one of the challenges here, right? The media, give them credit. I mean, they're good at finding sources, right? But that's, I mean, you had some leaks from people who knew. And not just with the media. I mean, we had leaks clearly at LAX. We had leaks within our own department, you know, because those photos, the crime scene photos um, yeah. from the initial Mandalay Bay shooting leaked pretty quickly into the media as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's something that I think we constantly struggle with um, in law enforcement. All right. Well, take us back to LAX. So um, now while you're flying out there, though, anybody know why you're flying out there on the plane other than maybe no. the crew? No. And it's very surreal to think, you know, and again, every time I flew back out there, you know, I, I tend to fly pretty casual. Um, you know, I don't, I didn't dress like an FBI agent. I'm not in a, you know, the typical suit in the fedora, um, you know, flying, <laughs> flying out. Uh, so I think I had a baseball cap on and was just pretty casual, but yeah, I mean, to think that you're flying to Los Angeles to interview what we knew at the time to be the worst mass shooting in the U S history to interview the suspect's girlfriend is a very surreal thing. And, you know, I, you go back and you kind of start being very introspective about your role in law enforcement and what you've done, you know, the previous 20 years of your career. And you realize what a, what a moment it is and how important it is. And, you know, and I, I wanted to, you know, I went there with the opinion that I'm going to be able to solve this. I'm going to be able to find out why I'm going to give closure to the victims and I'm going to give closure to the community and the country. And um, so I went with, with that, idea in mind that I'm going to be able to, and I was fairly successful about, you know, getting confessions and finding 
uh, finding out the reasons for cases in my past. So, you know, I didn't think that it would be any different. And I wasn't intimidated by the gravity and the enormity of the case. Um, but yeah, it is very surreal when you're, you know, flying on an airplane full of hundreds of people and somebody's sitting right next to you and has no idea what you're doing. Hey, and are, are you having any flashbacks at this point now? Or, I mean, even before that too, but from your your two weeks in Israel, thinking about here's the things that were happening there, what's happening there. Any, any intersection between, um, like we talked about, you're trying to discount early on whether it's terrorism or not. Any of this stuff from Israel play a role in this in terms of just forming thought patterns or how you were viewing things? No, I don't think so. I think the only thing that ever really crossed my mind was that, you know, we talk about these, in Israel, they talk about like kind of co-eccentric circles of uh, protection, you know, where you have an inner circle, an outer circle, middle circle, all that. You know, we were, I was pretty cognizant about the security issues that potentially were going to happen at LAX once we got there. Um, because I was concerned for her. I mean, we didn't really know what her involvement was, right? So I didn't know again if she was a suspect or not. So I think I was thinking security conscious stuff, but I wasn't necessarily thinking about, you know, my times back in Israel or, you know, sort of terrorism type stuff at that point. Cause at that point I still didn't really have a vibe that it was terrorism related. Okay. Um, you know, you, uh, cops, right. We trust our guts. And, uh, at that point I, I, I still, I didn't have a good indication. I, I didn't believe at that time that it was potentially terrorism related. So, um, you get there. When's your first interaction with the girlfriend? So we had, uh, her attorney, uh, had called, uh, our department and ultimately my supervisors and said, listen, she wants to cooperate. Uh, but the, but yeah, but the only issue is, is that we don't want you to interview her, uh, as soon as she lands. Right. And so, uh, there's always a gray area, right. In law enforcement. And so, uh, I was able to, uh, you know, I know that uh, since she's coming back into the country, right. I know she has to get processed through immigration, right. I know they have their standard questionnaires that they answer and ask her. I know that they have the ability to dump her electronics when she comes into the country. Um, so I know that there are some things that investigatively that we can do that, uh, will benefit me in the long run. Um, so I also knew that I had to balance, my department's investigative needs versus not uh, versus developing rapport with her attorney. Right. So I had to, I had to keep in good with her attorney. And ironically enough, her attorney is a drug cartel attorney in uh, Los Angeles, which um, the irony, right? <laughs> the irony. Mm-hmm. And I was going to, just for people know, I just wanted to fact check real quick. It's a, it's about a 12 and a half hour flight from Manila to LAX. If you go nonstop. Yes. So it's, it's a long flight in any event, but you brought up a very interesting point too. I think a lot of people may have glossed over, you're not officially just because you landed LAX on an international flight. You were not officially in the United States yet until the United States you go through customs and immigration and allows you in. And your point is, as long as you're in that, they don't need a warrant to search your phone. They don't need a warrant to search your baggage. So you talked about dumping her electronics. That's a that's a tactic you can do before somebody comes into the country. Is that something you guys did? Absolutely. And so we coordinated with DHS. Um, you know, again, her attorney had said, I don't want you interviewing her, which for me as an interrogator or interviewer, that is when I want to strike while the iron's hot, right? Because I know she's tired. Uh, I know she's just been on a 12 and a half, you know, 13 hour flight. I know she doesn't really know what's going on in Vegas. And so I think psychologically, again, going now I'm going back to my background in psychology. Psychologically, I have the advantage over her, right? So I want to do an interview right then and there. But again, I had to balance that with her attorney's request. So, um, have what you we ended up doing, 
you were talking about psychological. I just want to pipe in. Did you ever hear? Have you ever heard of the uh, Camp Kubark manual from the CIA on interrogation? Yes, I have. That's exactly what they did to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. They arrested his ass about four a.m. in the morning when they and they and for a, probably two years he didn't know if it was day or night. I mean, you get somebody yes. off filter, you keep them, and you um, and that gives you that gives you as the investigator, as the interrogator, the advantage. Absolutely. Yeah. So going in, I knew that, you know, that's what I wanted to do. But again, I had to balance that. So um, what we ended up doing was uh, there was a lot of different dynamics that were going on at the time when we first did our interaction with her. Because, you know, we have to do what's called the bump, right? Um, We have to bump her, right? To figure out how we're going to best approach her because I have to develop rapport with her too. Um, So uh, I ended up just sitting in the uh, immigration area, passively listening to her interview with DH with the immigration officers as she was coming in. Right, um, I <coughs> was able to kind of feed her, uh, feed the immigration people some questions that we wanted and some things that we wanted. You know, we wanted like her social media, we wanted her phone numbers. <coughs> Excuse me, we wanted some things that we um, thought would be beneficial to us uh, on the investigation side. Um, so I was able to kind of passively uh, listen to what was going on without her knowing who I was um, at the time. And so she was very frustrated. She was obviously tired. She was clearly kind of at her wits end, again, which uh, worked to our advantage. So uh, she does her whole thing with immigration, um, myself, and uh, we ended up using uh, the female FBI agent from LAX uh, to do a soft bump on her. So I approached uh, very casually. Um, we made it seem that she was the one that was going to help us out. We really played on her ego. We really played on the fact that she was very important to us in this investigation, that we flew all the way out from Vegas just to see her um, because we with really wanted clean to. Underwear. With clean underwear. With, with clean, clean underwear. underwear. Yes. And no toothbrush, though. Um but we really wanted to make it seem like we were being friendly. We wanted to really make it seem that she was um, kind of the star of the show, right? So uh, we just had a soft bump. I carried her bags for her. We actually took her out a back entrance to avoid all the media. Uh, her attorney had hired her a car to kind of whisk her out the back door um, of the airport so she didn't have to face all that scrutiny. Uh, scrutiny. Um, we introduced the FBI agent to her and we said, listen, we're, we're really looking forward to a meeting with you tomorrow. But we really made it feel like she was a VIP, right? Um, to kind of build that rapport, uh, knowing that we already had an interview set for that next morning uh, at uh, the FBI LA field office. Um, was this attorney, was he in, how did this, how did they connect up? How did a, how did a, you said a cartel attorney? Yes. So he's a big drug attorney out in LA. Um, so there's the same question I had. And actually, uh, him and I got along really, really well. He was very, very, you know, we think about defense attorneys. He was very, very supportive of the entire process with us. He realized the magnitude of the event as well. Um, is he doing this, I guess is he doing this more to, for notoriety for himself and or is it is is he because you know sometimes you see that it's like ambulance chase or something happens you got a hundred mm-hmm. attorneys by this by this time who has not heard of the water at Camp Lejeune right everybody's yeah. heard about the water at Camp <laughs> Lejeune right um, but what was his motivation or if you, that's the interesting part I wanted to find out how did he initially get contacted how did he, how did he initially get involved in this yeah so they were family friends. 
So he knew the family. And so the family had reached out to him. And I'm sure they paid a very hefty retainer uh, to have him on board. But again, he knew the gravity of the case. So again, that benefits him as well, right? That he can say that he represented the... Uh, the shooter's girlfriend as well. Um, mm-hmm. But again, I have nothing bad to say about him. He was great with us, really easy to work with. And, you know, he bent over backwards to make sure that we got what we needed in the case. Well, so uh, you would have preferred to interview her that day, but obviously that wasn't going to happen. So next best thing is that morning. So tell us about getting prepared for the interview that morning. What kind of things are you doing? Uh, what are you getting ready? Yeah. So I think we just really were trying to establish a baseline with her, right? Um, we, Uh, Obviously, the overall reaching question is why did he do this, right? But you, she's elderly female, right? She's Filipina. Uh, She's um, devout, devout Roman Catholic. Uh, So I had all these things that I had to consider, right? So not just culturally, but religiously and uh, generationally, I had to deal with that um, and try and balance that, right? So I had to. Uh, not come off too strong. Right? You can't just jump right into it and say, why did he do it? We know you're involved, right? We really had to tread lightly with our investigation on, and our interview with her on uh, trying to f- kind of feel it out with how that was going to go. So, And how did she, and the other thing too, as you discuss this, you talk about how she ended up becoming the girlfriend of this POS. So she had met him years and years ago when he was gambling up in Northern Nevada. Uh, she was, uh, uh, to my understanding, I think she was a waitress or cocktail waitress at a kind of a high-end slot or uh, gambling uh, part of the casino. And so she had met him there, and he essentially had said, hey, if you come travel with me and come live with me, I'll just take care of you, which is obviously a good deal for her. So, um, yeah, he had met her when he was gambling. Um, He had made quite a bit of money on some real estate deals and, you know, was a fairly prolific gambler. Um, was he a good gambler or just a a prolific gambler? Uh, probably right in between. I mean, I would say that he wasn't, um, like a high end gambler. Um, and there was a lot of talk in the media that he was pretty high end, but, uh, he probably wasn't very high end. I'd probably say he was probably right about in the middle. Okay. Um, you know, he did well for himself and uh, I think probably from most of our standards, um, you know, based on kind of average annual income annual income in the u.s you know he did really really well but you know statistically speaking in vegas you know he was probably kind of a medium fish you know he wasn't certainly a big fish or a whale and how long had they been boyfriend girlfriend by the time this incident happened the shooting oh i don't know the exact amount of time um i know that they had met probably early 2000s maybe um, they'd been okay. together quite a while because they had several homes together. They had one in uh, Mesquite, and then they had another home up in Reno as well. Um, and then they just kind of traveled quite a bit. You know, we were able to go back and look at their travel history as well and and pull that. Um, but, yeah, I would say probably, you know, at least five years or so that they had been together. Um, you know, they weren't married, but you know, they right. were essentially common law um, together with each other. So give, give us a sense of the interview room now. You know, like, um, is it one of these sterile government rooms, or are you guys trying to, you know— What's what's your plan about, like you say, you start off slow, you're taking into account culture, religion, you know, belief. Um, Just kind of paint the picture because obviously it's a podcast. People can't see pictures, but kind of paint a picture for us. Yeah, so it wasn't your typical, you know, sitting in a room, there's a chair in the middle of the room and the white light, you know, where, where were you at? The where night were you on the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There wasn't any, uh, you know, polygraph set up or wires or any sort of that stuff going on. Um, it was your typical office environment. So, you know, we had to manage. So it was myself, uh, the FBI agent that I flew out with from L- from Vegas, uh, the FBI LA uh, agent, uh, her attorney, 
her and her daughter, ironically enough, uh, was in most of the interviews initially. Um, so, you know, you have a room of what, six or seven people. Um, and it was just a typical office kind of boardroom setting, you know, sitting around the, sitting around the, uh, the boardroom table, um, very casual. I mean, open air, um, just typical office setting. It wasn't, you know, what you would see on TV or typical interrogation. Um, you know, we did not want it to have that kind of vibe to it. Uh, again, because we were very cognizant of uh, how she potentially might shut down if we approached it too heavy. Speaking uh, of shutting end. down, um, that's that's always one of the key things in an interview, right? Is do you advise somebody their rights? You know, do you trigger stuff or do you do you tell them, hey, you're free to go, you're not under arrest, you're free to go at any time? How did you guys handle the preface to the interview with do you advise of rights? You know, what was the plan behind that? Yeah, so I don't re- I don't believe we advised her of her rights uh, because we were approaching her as a a victim or a witness to this crime, right? Um, we uh, did not see her as a suspect initially. Um, again, uh, the, the word was thrown around; she was a person of interest, but um, I don't believe we ever approached it that way with her uh, during the first interview. Um, it was very soft. I mean, it was very conversational. Um, because the key thing is that if you get up, if you're free to leave at any time, and you do get up and leave, you were never uh, you were never under arrest at that point. You were detained. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she willingly came down to the field office, to the FBI office, right? She willingly came with her attorney. She knew what she was getting herself into. She knew the context for the interview. So um, the fact that everybody kind of knew and everybody was on the same page about what was going on and what we were trying to accomplish, you know, we really didn't feel the need to uh, be overbearing on her, uh, as far as the interrogation side. So, you know, there's quite a difference between an, an, an interview versus an interrogation, right? And we, we initially leaned very heavily on the, the interview aspect of it, as opposed to the interrogation aspect of it. Well, plus she also had a defense attorney there. If anything had gone wrong, he was going to shut it down anyway. Absolutely. And uh, you know, the vibe just never really got to yeah. the point where we felt the need really to do an interrogation with her. Because again, I mean, her and her attorney were both so cooperative and the family was very pro-law enforcement. Uh, her daughter, her daughter's husband is a psychiatrist out in LA and had regular dealings with the suspect and was obviously devastated that he didn't see any warning signs as well. So, you know, the family was nothing but pro-law enforcement and very eager to assist us uh, uh, in whatever we could, they could do to help us out. What's she's sitting across from you and you're looking at her. What's the vibe you get from her in terms of like, she, I mean, she's, she's come to a realization at this point is that somebody she referred to as her boyfriend now is a mass murderer. Yeah. And I think even above that, you know, somebody that she loved and somebody that she still loved, right? I think she, uh, one, I, you know, she's obviously still tired from her flight. Um, she never, to my understanding, had ever had any interaction with any sort of law enforcement, right? Especially in a kind of a confrontational type setting, nor the FBI. And then you add the fact that, you know, she has knowledge of the fact that her loved one uh, was, you know, is the worst mass shooter in the U.S. history. Um, she was very nervous, uh, very emotional, uh, very upset, um, but also conveyed that, you know, uh, she was willing to help us out and try and provide as much as she could in the context of what she actually knew. Um, you know, we sat, uh, she, we sat across from each other and, you know, we, we configured the tables differently depending on what uh, day it was and how many times we interviewed her. Because I think we ended up interviewing her probably uh, five or six different times for hours upon hours on end. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was, just, it never really, uh, we, 
towards the end of the interviews, we got confrontational and we'll talk about why we did that. Um, but it was very conversational. I mean, it was really like talking to your grandma. I mean, just, you know, Hey, what do you know? What can you tell us about this? You know, um, we, we really just kind of got into the, to the nuts and bolts of the case. We didn't jump in and, you know, aggressively go after right. her, but we really, I mean, everybody knew why we were there. So there was no real reason to beat around the bush or try and establish rapport with her. Right. Cause everybody already knew, and she was a willing participant in what was going on. So how did you plan each day? Like you talked about, this went over five or six days. So, I mean, there, cause with something like this, this isn't just going in and each day and go, well, let's just wing it guys. Let's just figure out what questions we're going to ask. Right. So how did you plan out at, who was going to ask the questions? How did you plan out, you know, your, your approach to where, cause this is really in a sense, a really full fledged debrief. It's like debriefing a, an informant or debriefing a spy, right? You are getting everything that you can tell us about the process around the plan. How do you plan something like that? Yeah. So because of the fact that it was a state case, you know, the FBI was great, uh, you know, and I had a good reputation on the GCTF. So they allowed me to kind of take lead. Um, because it was a state case, you know, I kind of dictated what was going on. I had the benefit of, uh, you know, several days of investigative information and intel that I had got uh, prior to flying out there the first time. So the general uh, way that we were handling it was, you know, it was a little bit of winging it, which I'm comfortable with because, um, you know, things that are going to come up during the interview that you're going to have to kind of, uh, you know, do a crazy Ivan or a mulligan on, right, and kind of uh, adapt to. But, uh, you know, we were getting information from uh, our homicide investigators. We were getting information from our crime scene investigators. We were getting information from, you know, they were starting to dump some of the digital uh, electronics he had in the room at Mandalay Bay. So we were starting to get a lot of information. And so I was taking the information that I got from the investigators on the homicide side and then taking those and posing them into questions uh, to get their questions answered uh, once I got to Los Angeles. So there was a little bit of uh, both. So there was a, a little bit of answering questions that I was getting fed from the homicide investigators and the people that were on scene in Vegas and my administrators, uh, with the, the police department, you know, our sheriff and our under sheriff and deputy chiefs. So getting questions that they want answered, but then also adapting it based on my investigative skill and my investigative approach uh, an interview approach to her uh, while I was on scene. So it was a little bit of both. So, you know, I had a set of questions that, I, you know, I would take notes uh, at the night, you know, before the hotel, I'd stay at the hotel, I'd jot down notes, kind of core questions that I want answered um, that I know I needed to have answered for my bosses back home. But then I also had just questions that I knew I would ask on the fly kind of as we went and let the interview uh, you know, as you interview people, especially as you do several interviews, as you go along, um, there becomes a flow, right? It becomes this kind of its own life and it, it builds and it breathes and you can kind of see that growing, uh, the relationship between you and the person that you're interviewing or interrogating the dynamic, the vibe, you can see all that kind of building and growing. So, um, you know, you're able to really kind of adapt to what that dynamic and it's very visceral. You can feel what that is like. So, um, I, you know, I would do a little bit of prep the night before, uh, at the hotel rooms, but a lot of it was, you know, playing upon what her answers were once we started getting into the, the questions, um, and then adjusting accordingly. 
So on, on day one, um, what did, what did you get done on day one? What was kind of your goal? You know, what did you get to on day one? Cause a lot of it's going to be preliminary stuff. Yeah. So I think day one, you know, we're talking about what is your relationship like? What is his relationship? Uh, you know, we pretty quickly wanted to dispel some uh, pretty grand ideas that were out there. So, you know, we hit on the terrorism issue fairly quickly on. Uh, we hit on the issue of uh, did he have any sort of accomplices? Did he have any sort of people that you think might be involved in this? Um, it was very... Um, uh, very concrete questions, right? It wasn't, you, we weren't in the minutia. We were very, very uh, hard topics. You know, is he a terrorist? What are his beliefs? What did you know? Um, you know, does he have any accomplices? What is your impression of what happened? Why did he do this? What is your impression of why he did this? Um, you know, very quickly on, obviously we wanted to know the mental health history. Uh, we wanted to know drug history. We wanted to know ideological based history. Um, so we were getting into some very like, very concrete topics early on, right? That was generally the first interview because I had to be able to go back to my bosses and say, my goal for the first interview was I wanted to go back and say, yes, she's involved or no, she isn't involved and then build upon that, right? So that was my initial goal was one, is there anybody else involved? Is it terrorism? And, you know, is she involved or she's not involved? And then kind of go from there. Had he, how many times had he visited her in the Philippines? Uh, to my knowledge, at least once, possibly twice, because we were able to find some photographs of them there. Um, but it wasn't very often. Well, the, the um, reason I, I ask is there's only really one terrorist group in the Philippines, and it's Abu Sayyaf. Um, yep. And so that, that's that's the reason I ask that from just a terrorism side, is as you're starting to look at that, does anything about Abu Sayyaf come into your discussion with her or about any contacts with anybody in the Philippines? So not with her, but uh, I'm familiar with Abu Sayyaf, and we were concerned because uh, fairly early on in the investigation, we found that he had sent her, uh, he first sent her a wire transfer of $75,000. And then uh, he ended up subsequently sending her another wire transfer for another $75,000. So we're looking at $150,000 as getting dumped into the Philippines. And so we did think about that possibility, right? Where That's is that a lot money of going? Thing power from us converting it over mm -hmm. to the Philippines. Absolutely. And so that was our concern about where was that money going in the Philippines? So yes, Abu Sayyaf was a consideration that we thought, um, again, coming from a counterterrorism background, but, um, we weren't able to identify anything and it wasn't a conversation that we had with her because it was very clear early on, you know, after the first couple hours of interviewing her, what the dynamic was and that she was not, and he was not affiliated to any um, terrorist organizations. So you talked about a couple hours getting the vibe. What was your vibe from her after two hours? What would you categorize her as, as a, a unwitting accomplice, as a nice old person that just got duped? I mean, what was your, after a couple hours into this, what did, what was your evaluation of her? So my evaluation was that she was not directly involved in the planning, nor did she know that he was going to do this. Her context and what she explained to us was that um, he had his dynamic and he had a break about a year before the event. Like I, I would categorize it as maybe a mental health or psychological break where his, um, 
his psychology and his personality really changed about a year prior to that event. So, you know, we always look for what's called trigger events, right? That cause people to go down this pathway to violence. Um, so we're always looking for that event. Uh, it was clear about a year before, you know, we saw an increase, uh, again, when we look at the pathway to violence from a, 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 a threat, a threat assessment and threat management type perspective, you know, we're looking towards an, we're looking for what's called an energy burst where he's engaging in all kinds of rapid activities towards his plan of attack. Right. Um, so he had all, he had an energy burst. I mean, he started buying up all these firearms for the year leading up to the event. Right. Um, but there was a clear event. There was a clear break that he had. We couldn't figure out what that was or what caused that. Um, but again, my impression was, was that, you know, she said that he had a history of when he was going to break up with women, that he would kind of get them back on their feet because he was kind of, uh, he had taken care of her, right? Um, you know, he paid for everything. He paid for all the travel. She didn't have any sort of financial need. He just had taken care of everything. So her thought was, was that when he, they had some very frank conversations prior to her going to the Philippines and he said, listen, I want to send you out to the Philippines so you can buy a home out there. I know how much you love it. I know how much you love your family out there. So I'm going to send you out there. You go find a home you like. When she got out to the Philippines, she said, oh, I can't really find anything I like for $75,000. So he sent her another $75,000, right? Convenient for her, right? So, um, but her context was, you know, he's sending me out of town. He's sending me all this money he knew that he had a his that she, that he or she knew he had a history of breaking up with women and getting them back on their feet. So her context was: he's sending me out of town. He's giving me all this money because when uh, when I come back, he's going to break up with me. It wasn't that he was sending her out of town uh, to commit this uh, act of mass violence. So I, I want to ask you about something. I'm not I'm not trying to call you out on it, but you've been very yep. careful not to completely she had nothing to do with it no knowledge nothing you said she wasn't involved in the planning she didn't you haven't come out and categorically said you know not involved at all and is that is that a statement based on current thing or was that a, is that a statement based on where you were in the investigation that you had no you had no knowledge she was involved in the planning i think at that point in the investigation we didn't believe it so as it hashed out during the interviews, as we did subsequent interviews with her, um, we knew that she loaded magazines for him. We knew that she um, went shooting at you know a range beside, behind their house. Like he would go out and he would go out shooting for familiarization with the firearms that he was buying. So she she helped him load these magazines, the fully loaded magazines, into uh, bags and into suitcases. So. She was seeing his behavior. She just did not know the context of it. So I think that's a very subjective thing to say. She wasn't planning it, right? But she was certainly aware of what he was doing and noticed that he had an increase in fixation towards firearms, which was anomalous to what was going on early on in their relationship. Um you know, she knew that he had developed this hobby towards guns. She knew that he had, you know, was buying bait. She specifically said, you know, he was buying baby monitors, but we had no babies in the family and we had no baby showers coming up. She also said that, you know, he was buying scuba gear because there was a scuba tube in one of the uh, pictures of the crime scenes where he had 
uh, fashion, some sort of kind of self-contained breathing, anticipating SWAT to gas the room. Uh, so he had fashioned this kind of makeshift scuba tubing in the room. Um, so she knew he was buying scuba gear, but he was an elderly male and we live in the middle of the desert. He does not scuba. So she knew there was all these weird things going on with him and his purchases, but she really didn't want to rock the boat because she knew if she rocked the boat, he would kick her out and she didn't have anything really to fall back on. So she kind of just stayed quiet and didn't really address any of these concerns that she had with him uh, for fear of uh, probably, you know, getting kicked out and, you know, not having any sort of livelihood anymore. How long had they, have they been together? Yeah. Again, I I think probably five to seven years, maybe. Uh, Yeah. It'd been quite a few years that they'd been together. But she didn't want to kill the goose with the golden egg there. Yeah, I yeah, I, I think that was part of it, yeah. But the firearms thing was kind of a, a later thing, right? That's not something he was doing when they initially got together, you were no, saying? No, not at all. Yeah, it was more towards the end. So again, you know, we talk and, you know, when we teach and we ask people the whole see something, say something campaign, right? Had she have said something maybe to family members or, hey, he's buying all these guns and, you know, all these other things. And not just maybe her, but anybody that sees this sort of behavior, you know, you have to give law enforcement the chance to figure out what that context is sometimes, right? So again, it's not against the law to do any of that stuff, but it was certainly, when we look at it from a behavioral um, threat assessment approach, it was certainly outside of his baseline, right? And you keep mentioning, you mentioned San Bernardino at one time. We had Eric McBride on, who was the assistant chief there in San Bernardino. And we talked to him about the the, the shooting. And that was one of the things that happened there was um, they started getting shipments of weapons or they started getting more weapons. And people knew it and knew that was out of character and still said nothing. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we always teach our officers. And when I teach threat assessment, you know, we want people to report this, what's what's called leakage, right? People are seeing this behavior that's concerning, but you know, most time it's family or people on their inner circle. And he was very good, right? Cause it was just him and her, um, of keeping that sort of behavior isolated to his home. And so absent her or somebody from, you know, maybe a firearm shop or something else, um, you're really not going to see that sort of anomalous behavior because she knows what's normal for him and what's not normal for him. But, you know, again, she didn't know the context, so she never bothered to report it. So for him, any family, kids, anything else in his... uh, So he had, had, yeah, he had been married a couple of times, no family. Uh, He has, uh, I believe, three brothers. Um, and they're all very interesting characters as well, um, that we had to deal with. Um, his one brother from Florida, ironically enough, um, came out and, uh, you know, I won't get into the whole psychology of all of them as well, but, you know, there are issues with, uh, pretty much every male family member in that, uh, in his, uh, family, including his father. His father was a top fifties bank robber. Uh, top 10 most wanted in the 50s with the FBI. And he was very aware of his father's criminal notoriety um, and was very absent from the family life. Uh, yeah. Mom, and mom, in fact, had at one point told uh, the shooter, your dad is dead and when he was actually in jail. And then dad comes home and is like, okay, well, now I got to try and figure out how to explain to the children that dad's actually not dead. Dad's, you know, was just in jail. So That is interesting because that almost starts leading you to think is in terms of was, and again, I don't, I'm not going to psychoanalyze stuff because number one, I'm not qualified, but number two, that doesn't stop us from doing it anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he, he's thinking about the notoriety his dad had, you know, and, and I don't know, maybe his way out, his way out is, Hey, what kind of notoriety can I, can I, was he trying to, it's almost one of those things. It's almost like, uh, 
um, uh, some uh, what I want, you know, Oedipus complex, you know, you know, I mean, I'm trying to please my parent, you know, even after they're dead, you know, uh, again, that's just, that's just conjecture. But the, when the minute you said his dad was a top 10 most wanted, you know, back in the fifties bank robber, boy, that really starts setting the stage from everything, but you know, about manipulation, the way they think about stuff, you know, the way they do stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, um, you know, when the FBI behavioral analysis uh, report that's out there, you know, anybody in the media can go out and get it or anybody in the public can go out and look at that. I think that was one of the things that they did key on. Um, you know, and it's interesting. I know when they interviewed the mom at one point, you know, and kind of told her that her son was involved in this and that he had killed himself in the room, you know, her, uh, comment was, uh, wow, that must've been a really brave thing for him to do to kill himself. Right. So if she's kind of, uh, framing his behavior on, and, you know, maybe his entire life, I don't know, right? We talk about like developmentally, uh, psychological development, you know, was she framing that, you know, suicide is a noble act, right? Um, you know, you got to think about what sort of context he has to homicidal ideation, right? Um, if that was her first response, not, you know, wow, it's terrible that he killed all these people. You know, her context was, hey, you know, what he did was a very brave thing by killing himself, right? Uh, which to me is is very, I think, telling about what that family dynamic was like growing up. Yeah. So she didn't She didn't make that remark. Like, if I made that remark, I'm a, it's, it's a sarcastic remark. You don't think that was the case? No, I don't think so. Yeah, the context that I heard it in the interviews that I read, yeah, my my thought was that, you know, she saw him as being a very brave person for, you know, taking himself out uh, as opposed to, you know, the fact that he killed 60 people. Let's make no mistake here. There's nothing more than a coward. There's nothing brave about what this man did. He's Absolutely. But, but you know, there's also a thing in, in uh, terrorism planning, too, and you pro- there's, there's a couple of variations of it, too, but it's basically there's almost every terrorist attack goes through these stages, right, which is broad targets, you know, target selection and planning, broad target selection, reconnaissance on the objective, you know, deploying to do their executing the attack, and then it gets into things like escape and evasion. He went through all basically a lot of the indicators of terrorism just in the sense of hey he was out reconnaissancing thing you know he was looking at broad target selection he finally decided on his target planning got everything in the room got everything set and then he executed his plan except for him it doesn't appear if what you're saying is there was never any plan for him to survive this right he 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 it, it was it was clear in his mind he was going to die in that room so I, I think it depends on who you ask. Um, I think there's varying opinions out there. Um, we went back and looked after the event. Uh, we went back and looked at uh, the DHS mobilization indicators for terrorism. Uh, at the time, we had what was called the seven signs of terrorism uh, here in Nevada that we looked at. And then uh, when we use our assessment tools, we use uh, here in Vegas, we use what's called the Trap 18. And so we looked at all of his behaviors based on all these different assessment tools, right? And, you know, he engaged in a lot of pre-operational surveillance, right? He engaged in what you were talking about, right? And target planning and stuff. Um, He hit on a lot of the DHS mobilization indicators. He hit a lot on, you know, seven signs of terrorism, behavioral indicators that we were teaching to the hotel industry and the service industries in Nevada, and we hit a lot on the on this stuff, and then obviously a lot of the trap eighteen indicators as well. Um, he hit on, but uh, as far as an escape or evasion plan, I don't know. Um, and the reason I say I don't know is because several reasons. Um, 
his vehicle was parked in valet. So my thought, and this is my opinion, if he was going to try and escape, he probably would not have parked his vehicle in valet, right? Because in the chaos of everything, he would not have been able to go down to valet, get his car, wait for it, you know, have somebody pull it up, and then he would have driven away, right? Um, that probably would not have been the case. But he had gone back and forth between self-parking and valet several times during his stay. The only thing I, I that causes me a little bit of pause in that theory is that when we found his vehicle at a valet, he had about uh, 50 pounds of tannerite in the vehicle. Not mixed, but, you know, binary explosives in the vehicle. And so, you know, my thought is, what was he going to do with that binary explosive in that vehicle, right? Did he have a secondary target? Was he going to potentially go out and maybe, you know, put that together, put it on the strip and shoot it, and now it's a V-bid? You know, I don't know. That is about the only thing that gives me some pause um, to why. Additionally... But but see that right there is a and that's also a favorite terrorist tactic too. We saw it, you know, that ISIS does, that Al Qaeda does it, which is you have the initial attack, um, you've got a delay, you wait till the first responders show up, and then you've got a secondary attack. Absolutely, yeah. So I mean, I don't know why he had that. You know, I'm assuming it was not for happy purposes why he had um, the Tannerite in his in his vehicle. Um, There was no indication that he had ever used Tannerite uh, when he went out shooting, according to the girlfriend. Um, but you know, I could only assume that it was probably for nefarious purposes. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe he had multiple plans. Maybe he, you know, planned to, uh, escape and use that if he could. Um, but again, I, there's a lot of variables. I think, you know, we had a security guard that ended up responding to an alarm on the floor because a door was propped that probably escalated his attack planning. Right. Cause he ended up seeing the security guard come down the hallway and he fires out of the hallway at the security guard and shoots the security guard. So, you know, maybe he wasn't ready to attack at the time and everything wasn't prepped yet, but the security guard spooked him, you know, so he had to escalate his attack. So I, I think there's just so many variables and I don't know that there's a right or a wrong answer on a lot of these questions. Cause you know, obviously we don't have the ability to interview him and his, um, uh, computer forensics and the stuff that we found really didn't provide much insight into yeah, it's only you know, one, what his thought process was like. It's only one part of the story and kind of, we're going to get back to the, the girlfriend in a second, but just kind of take out that thread. It, it, you talked about too, he basically put together a gas mask, a scuba system, you know, so that he could, so the thing was, why would you do that unless you either planned on shooting it out or you're, if you're going to kill yourself, what's the need for that? Because the minute they start breaching the door, you go up, oh, I'm done, boom, and it's over, right? So Absolutely. he's got he's got at least some kind of a plan to say, I at least want to survive an encounter or an engagement or be, have the capability to still engage if, if you know, the door get, gets breached or somebody comes after me. Yeah. And, you know, by the time they breached the room, I think it was about an hour and a half after the last uh, shot had been fired. So it wasn't, you know, a lot of people ask me when I teach this class, uh, you know, why did he kill himself or why did he choose that particular time? And I don't know the answer to that, right? Because it wasn't really like we were beating down the door or we were ramming the door or coming in after him, right? I mean, there was a lull, right? Because you go from an active shooter event to now there's no more shooting going on because we had officers that were on the floors relatively quickly after the shooting occurred um, and they don't hear any more firing. So now you become more of a barricade type situation, right? Um, and you have to be slow and methodical as opposed to active shooter now where we breach, 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 and we go, 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 right, to take out the shooter. Um, so it had the dynamic had really slowed. So I don't know what caused him to feel the need to kill himself at that particular time because he had 
thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition in the room to still keep himself going, uh, to sustain himself in the fight if he really wanted to keep killing people. Um, so, you know, I don't know, obviously, what went through his head besides that bullet uh, at the end. Yeah. Well, even if, he had, you know, if, if they were trying to breach the room, he's already shown that he can shoot through the doorway and hit the security guard. We all know the walls in the hotels are nothing more than drywall. It's not going to stop a 223 round. Yeah. You mentioned uh, an acronym a while ago. If you could just describe it to our listeners, a VBID. Yeah. So uh, Vehicle Born Improvised Explosive Device. You know, essentially where somebody uh, creates a bomb and uses the a vehicle as the mechanism for the delivery of that bomb. So, so you know, I... We have a little rule here. If you use an acronym, you have to tell us what it does. Oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> and speaking of working with the ATF, uh, which stands for after the fire, for those of us in the know. Uh, no. um, but they do do, did you get an estimate back on what 50 pounds of tannerite for do? Because for a lot of folks don't know, if you got some corn-fed, you know, farm boys out there, like I came from mm-hmm. Kansas, you got some, you know, good old rednecks out there. It's not unusual for them to get a little bit of tannerite, pop around into it and watch it blow up. Yeah, it's my understanding that I know. Uh, I don't think the FBI did it, but I, or the ATF, but I believe the FBI did it. I think they did. Uh, they took it out. Uh, some WMD guys, some weapons of mass destruction agents, ended up taking it out and kind of doing a simulated thing to see what that would look like, and it would have caused some fairly major destruction. You know, especially if he had parked that, you know, next to the strip or something. He packed it together, maybe in a door panel or something, and was able to fire around to it and cause it to to go off. You know, it would have caused a fairly substantial explosion. Was the valet parking underground or out in the open? At Mandalay Bay, uh, I believe it is underground. Yeah, it's underground. I'm refreshing my memory looking at the photos. It's underground. Yeah, because my thought was, because that's the thing, he's already chunked out that window, you know, broken it out. Um, had he done self, you know, the other thing too, he could have caused additional damage by having that vehicle there in a line of sight from his weapon and then triggering it off, you know, by blowing it up there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think I would have given it a little bit more consideration if the, the compound had been mixed, but the fact that it wasn't mixed, you know, again, maybe for a future operation, he thought he was going to get out of there and use it for something else. Yeah. I mean, it leads to all kinds of different speculation as to what actually occurred. And I think this is the crux of this case is that there are so many what ifs, right? And it has led to all these different conspiracy theories about what actually occurred in this event um, because there's so many, you know, we don't know and what ifs about uh, these events and his behavior that was going on and the stuff that he had in the room. Well, and that's the reason we kind of went down this path. We, we wanted to put this stuff out because these are now all questions you've got for the girlfriend because you're trying to figure out a lot of these stuff, right? When did he come in possession of Tannerite? Had he done anything with explosives before? Had he received any training? You know, Absolutely. All of these things start factoring into your question. So let's get back to the girlfriend. So day one's over. At the end of day one, how did you think it went? What did you think? Did you, did you accomplish what you wanted to? I did. You know, I was comfortable with the way the interview went. Um, I was confident that we had built rapport with her. Um, the attorney, you know, uh, I talked to the attorney after the interview. Um, you know, he felt that everything was was good. It, it went well. We felt like everybody trusted each other in the room. Again, we were all there for a kind of a common purpose. We really heavily leaned on the fact that, you know, it was a tragedy and, you know, she was there to help us. You know, um, we really tried to frame it in that kind of manner as opposed to, you know, you're a potential suspect in there. Um, I don't believe we ever even broached that issue with her or even kind of dabbled in that with her. We just kind of danced around it. You know, there's ways for us to try and elicit that information without, you know, a- directly asking her that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I was 
comfortable after the first interview. And, you know, we flew, we stayed the night in the hotel and then we flew back. Um, and then I had to obviously provide briefings to our sheriff about uh, the status of the interviews and kind of update them as we went along. Um, but I was comfortable what happened with the interview. I was comfortable with the fact that I didn't believe she was a person of interest. Uh, I believe that she, you know, was aware of what was going on as far as what he was doing, but I don't believe that she, um, you know, was part uh, or complicit in his uh, attack planning or, you know, I didn't believe that we had anything that we could even remotely charge her with um, uh, criminally based on her um, actions in the case or, you know, anything leading up to the event itself. Um, I, I knew that I was fairly confident we were interviewing a person that was a witness to it, um, not necessarily a person that was a suspect anymore. Was there any indication she went to Chicago with him uh, or any no. of these other locations? Okay. No, no, no indication at all. So, um, but you mentioned though, during the, you, so you talked about in the interviews, you went from being cordial, you know, to being confrontational. What was the strategy behind getting a little bit confrontational? What, what was, what had changed or what were you looking to accomplish? So I think, you know, after probably the third or fourth interview, um, you know, my bosses were not, it's very difficult to, convey a feeling in the room, right? A, a hunch or your gut feeling, right? Unless you're actually experiencing it, right? And dealing with somebody, um, you know, it's hard for me to say this is what this person is like unless you're actually in the room. And so, you know, when I would go back to my supervisors at the police department and brief them on the case, they were still under the impression that, no, 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 she's a person of interest. She's a suspect. Somebody needs to be arrested for this. Somebody needs to, you know, take the the fall for this. Somebody needs to take the hit. You know, we need somebody, right? As I don't want to say the scapegoat, but somebody needs to be uh, held accountable for this behavior, right? Hey, players, this is the end of part three of our four-part series with our interview with Ken Mead, the lead investigator from... Uh, Las Vegas Metro Police involving the Route 91 Harvest Country Music Festival mass shooting that happened on October 1st, 2017. Hey, just as we close out part three here, just make sure to go over and join us uh, and hit those five stars at Apple and Spotify. Let us know what you think of these episodes. I think these are some of the most important episodes we've ever done. They get to the real story behind what happened. And as we said, you were only going to hear this one place. That's right here on Game of Crimes. Also head on over to GameofCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We'll be updating it. We'll add merch. Uh, go look at our book list. Also follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And also go to Patreon com slash Game of Crimes. We have a lot of content there in addition to our free content that we do here on the podcast. So join us tomorrow for the fourth installment and final installment of our interview with Ken Mead, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police, the lead investigator for the Route 91 Country Music Festival mass shooting that happened on October 1st, 2017.